Hey friends, it's Ashley Stahl here, your host. I'm a counterterrorism professional turned career coach, speaker, and now author of the brand new book that just came out yesterday called U-Turn with the subtitle, Get Unstuck, Discover Your Direction, and Design Your Dream Career. And I wanted to do things a little bit differently today. Usually you're gonna get an episode from me, of course, on your mindset, on your work life, on your love life with guest experts who are here to help you rise in those areas. But because this week is so special and my new book, U-Turn, just hit the shelves and is available now shipping on Amazon yesterday, and of course now today still, I wanted to share with you a piece of my heart through this book and I got in touch with my publisher and they were kind enough to allow me to share 30 minutes of my chapter one audio with you. And, you know, a lot of books are narrated by professional narrators, but it felt really important to me that I narrate and share this book myself. And so I was inspired to do my own audible recording with my publisher and get this little piece of my book out to you. Whether you support me as an author and buy the book or not, I thought it would be so much fun to share with you. So instead of going into a guest interview this week, you are going to come into right now the first 30 minutes of chapter one of U-Turn. This book is for you. If something feels like it's missing in your career, if you feel a sense of the Sunday night scaries, the Monday blues, and you're not really sure what's next for you, but you know you want to be fulfilled. And while chapter one is a little bit more about getting into the story, all 12 chapters of the book hold an 11-step roadmap for you to get clarity on your career. If you're an audiobook person like me, the Audible is just more of what you're about to hear since I'm narrating it. And I'm just so honored that you are going to experience this. So without further ado, before we get into the Audible recording in a second, I wanted to remind you and thank our sponsor, Organifi. They are such an incredible wellness provider. I eat their protein in my protein shake smoothie every single day. I have their Organifi Gold product every single afternoon, a little turmeric latte with nut milk to just keep me going. And I am just so grateful that they are sponsoring this show and giving us all 20% off when you use the code U-Turn at checkout. That's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N at checkout. All you got to do is go to Organifi's site, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash Y-O-U-T-U-R-N, and then use that code at checkout for 20% off. Without further ado, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for supporting me. I could cry. And I hope you love the beginning of this book, whether you continue on and buy the rest of the audio or not. Available now on Audible. And I can't wait to hear from you in the DMs. Let me know what you think. Chapter 1. Don't do what you love, do what you are. October 1st, 2011. Deep down, I knew it was coming because I couldn't shake the feeling of being out of sync with myself, with my life, with everything. It was as if everything felt like an itchy sweater. Have you ever felt like that? Not the sweater, but that feeling of being trapped in your own life with no way out. What I didn't realize at the time was that I should have leaned into that feeling and gotten curious about it, rather than feeding it with a constant flow of resistance. What you resist gets louder. I found that out the hard way. 
I knew my life needed to change, but I wasn't sure how it would happen or if I even wanted to face it. It wasn't until I found myself holding a loaded 45 caliber handgun that the it finally happened. It wasn't a dream or some runaway fantasy of a better life either. It was an awareness, a newfound realization that my life was about to change forever. And like a seed that eventually has no choice but to burst open and turn into a flower, my moment came. With that pistol in my hand, I had no choice but to grow. One of the biggest U-turns I've ever made was in my career. The year was 2011 and I was 24 years old. Being a young person in the workforce, I constantly found myself questioning what society would tell me. That I'd have to start my career out fetching coffee, work my way up the ladder, or take jobs for no other reason than to get my foot in the door. I yearned for more. Something in my heart told me I could just work hard and grow quickly in my career. I lived in that mindset of possibility despite the results I saw in front of me, trusting that perhaps there was more. Then, one day, there was. Just weeks after leaving my job as an administrative assistant in Los Angeles making minimum wage, I became the shiny new supervisor for a coveted training program at the Pentagon. I went from an assistant at an advertising agency in L.A. to being in charge of a high-level training curriculum preparing seasoned U.S. government civilian workers for risky new assignments in Afghanistan. I'd stepped into a rare opportunity to start my career in a management role, and I couldn't believe I'd networked my way into this job. I was excited to learn from senior staff who could mentor me. Rumor on the street was that this job was previously filled by a slew of smart senior military officials who weren't good fits for it. In fact, the last person in my role had been a 65-year-old colonel. Why didn't they work out in the position? because the military taught them to delegate to a large team. And while they did it brilliantly, this job required someone who was alert, energized, and hungry to do the work herself. In a military world committed to ranking order and climbing the ladder, I somehow became the exception to the rule. Knowing I wouldn't have to work my way up, I was giddy at the thought of stepping into leadership at such a young age. I was also scared shitless and unsure whether this was even my path. In fact, I was unsure of who I really was at the time. My first day on the job started oddly, to say the least. One of my colleagues led me down a gray hallway. As I followed this guy walking in front of me, all I heard was the out-of-place sound of clickety-clack from my high heels echoing across the concrete floor. There wasn't any kind of small talk or even a, hey, congrats on the new job or a welcome to the team. I wasn't sure if it was his choice to show dominance or the fact that I was just a woman in a man's military world, but there he was, three steps ahead, leading me down the halls of the Pentagon as if I were a lost puppy trying to find a home. I had a fake smile plastered on my face. Beneath it were worry, panic, and an extraordinary fear of failure. Do you ever smile at people at work when you're actually petrified? My escort was head of the Republican club at his college in the Northeast, played on the varsity golf team, and served as a former White House intern for the Bush administration. I would later find out he was also getting $17,000 a year more than I was for doing the exact same job. 
The realization was painful, and it left me wondering what I possibly could have done to better advocate for myself. Have you ever found out someone's getting paid more than you for the same job? It's painful. I looked around the room and realized there were no windows. My fancy new job, the one I'd worked so hard to get, began inside a bunker-style basement. It was exactly how it sounds. Cold floors, battleship gray walls, and no windows or heat to speak of. Welcome to government work, I thought to myself as I adjusted my coat to fend off the chilly air wafting through the room. It was the middle of December in Washington, D.C., and there wasn't a jacket in the world that could save me. In fact, I wore one coat every day that friends lovingly referred to as the sleeping bag. I was shown to a large desk in the far corner of the basement, also known as my new office. Don't get me wrong. I was grateful for the opportunity. To be 24 years old, making nearly six figures in a management job, that blew my mind. And working for the Pentagon, no less. More on that U-turn later. Nonetheless, I was still totally thrown off as I looked down at the red glow of the space heater clearly struggling to do its job against the cold leaking through the walls. I said to myself, I'm a sweater girl. I can work with this. As long as my feet are warm, I can bundle up and make it work. Next, the guy turned around and said, so this is my desk. And over there, that's yours. I turned and saw an isolated chair in the opposite corner. There was no desk, no table, just a chair. I smiled and thought, is this some sort of joke? I even wondered if my new colleagues had a dark sense of humor, pulling me into some sort of welcome prank. But the guy didn't even blink. Where's my desk? I turned around, offering a curious smile. His response made my lungs pop like little balloons. This is just like Afghanistan. Girls come second to men, he said finally looking in my direction. And through his smirk, he continued, one day we'll give you a desk, but you're going to have to earn it first. I remember thinking to myself, is this guy stuck in the 1800s? How am I supposed to write pages upon pages of intelligence reports if I can't put my laptop on a desk? I wish I could tell you that I stood up for myself and called Cheryl Sandberg, Susan B. Anthony, and Gloria Steinem to organize a feminist march with me in the basement, or that at least I commented on his sexism and reported him to HR. But I didn't. Instead, I went to the bathroom and I cried. Of course, I wept quietly, silencing my whimpers with paper towels because, hey, I was rolling with the military now and there wasn't space for me to complain. I wasn't aware then of how low my confidence was, despite being someone friends knew to stand up for a cause. I had a master's degree from King's College London, a top foreign affairs graduate program worldwide, and a triple major in government, history, and French, which represented years of study, achieving fluency in French and producing a dissertation on al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. All for what? To deal with unequal pay while working out of a dungeon in the dead of winter? Really? After three days of balancing my laptop on my knees in my single chair, I found an empty two-drawer filing cabinet gathering dust in the storage closet down the hall. It wasn't a desk, but I made it work. After a couple weeks of working alongside Mr. Misogyny and living my single chair existence, I was saved by an angel. Discover your core nature. 
my angel came in the form of a sweet, curvy Southern woman named Jeanette. Her name, like many names in this book, has been changed to keep privacy intact. She was a single mom from Louisiana and moved to D.C. after her son, a Marine, got stationed here. She was always bringing baked goods into the office, like a grandma I saw in the movies. And best of all, she insisted that I have a desk close by her. He didn't give you a desk? Jeanette said to me one day, outraged. Girl, why didn't you show him who you are? I looked at her and repeated her words with curiosity. Who I am? Maybe I don't know who I am, Jeanette. She laughed and said words I'd never forget. You've just been here a few weeks, and let me tell you, the room changes for all of us when you walk in. You're communicative, wise, joyful, bold, curious, and funny. You gotta use those God-given skills you got to get what you want. I stared at her, not registering that these six words, communicative, wise, joyful, bold, curious, and funny, represented a career coaching term I'd eventually coin my core nature. Your core nature is all about the energy you bring to the room when you're in your most natural state and a reflection of how people experience you. Usually it's about four to six words that sum your energy up. Here, Jeanette exclaimed unapologetically, walking towards me with a small desk in her hands. Have you ever had someone advocate for you at work? They change everything, right? I stood up with a smile on my face. My back straightened and unexpected tears filled my eyes. With a desk of my own, I felt like I was finally seen as a true professional. She reminded me of the worthiness that has always been inside of me, a sense of self-value that's necessary for making a U-turn. More often than not, even when we're in the darkest of places, our pain cracks us open for change. In this sort of fragile state, we tend to come across these rays of light that shine into us. Jeanette was my ray of light in a world that felt very heavy to me. She was a fierce, motherly presence in a masculine building, and her way of being in the world inspired me. Her light also reminded me of my own light, my core nature, as those six words she'd spoken would become the foundation I'd eventually build my career upon. Here's the thing about being a 24-year-old woman working among military men. I received a lot of attention, the wrong kind of attention. I'm sure it had a lot to do with the fact that other than Jeanette, I was one of the only women in sight. It didn't matter if they were married or single. It was as though I was in one of those cartoons where you see a small sheep innocently frolicking around in a herd of hungry wolves. Later, I heard someone refer to me as civilian eye candy. It was a spotlight I wanted no part of, and I had bigger dreams for myself. All this dehumanization and objectification led me to start reflecting on what inspired me to join the government in the first place the opportunity to learn foreign languages and work toward my dream of becoming an intelligence officer for the Central Intelligence Agency. That means a person willing to travel the world and use her people skills as a tool to build foreign relationships with the hope of turning people against their own state in order to collect information for the U.S. government. 
Looking back, I'd grown up in a house where the news was always on, and I was always curious about the happenings of the world. Part of my core nature, curiosity, was noticeable at a young age. Plus, my extended family was on the East Coast and was very impacted by 9-11. So there I was, young, sitting at dinner parties, listening to my parents argue over politics with my uncles. Early on, I told myself that joining the government would be a service to the world, to keep people safe. Being bold was part of my core nature, and I thought perhaps I could use it for this purpose. What do you notice about your energy now that you also carried with you at a young age? Thoughts on the passion myth. Leading up to college, I was often told, follow your passion or do what you love. Sound familiar to you too? I loved studying politics in college, but what I didn't realize then is that there's a big difference between what you love and who you are. In fact, I love a lot of things. I love cupcakes, five-star hotels, and massages. But let me tell you, I'd be a shitty cupcake baker, a horrendous concierge, and a nightmare of a masseuse. Ask any of my ex-boyfriends about that. A lot of us think passion should dictate the work we choose to do. I learned the hard way that there's a huge difference between being a consumer and a producer. Just because I love buying clothes as a consumer doesn't mean I should become a fashion designer, the producer of the clothes. A happy consumer does not always translate into a happy producer. I walked into my job filled with a passion for wanting to help people. I don't think the intention was wrong, but I quickly realized I needed more than just passion to be successful or fulfilled. I needed to consider my core nature, my core skill set, my core values, and so much more. I didn't know all this because I wasn't yet a career coach, but we'll examine these concepts as they relate to your career throughout this book. Look, every field comes with its own challenges. You can try to change them, but more often than not, your success will come from how you work with them. Hey, U-Turners, so sorry for the quick interruption, but I want to give a shout out to Organifi right now, our sponsor for this episode. I just love their products, and one I've been using every single day is their green juice powder product, and I've whipped up a really fun green latte recipe for it. Sounds weird, tastes amazing. Every afternoon to get my greens on, I boil some hot oat milk, and in a mug, I throw in a spoonful of their green juice powder as well as a half spoonful of my own matcha powder and I use a frother to blend the green juice powder, the matcha powder, and the hot oat milk into this magical tasty green latte that has become my ultimate afternoon pick-me-up. Their green juice powder is packed with 11 superfoods in it. Everything from ashwagandha, which is used in Ayurvedic medicine in India, to moringa, which is an herb that keeps your skin glowing, and they're using moringa in the Bahamas to prevent COVID-19. It's just incredible to detoxify your body, get your greens going, and it's organic. So to get yourself going on a super healthy green latte in the afternoon, just head on over to Organifi.com slash U-Turn. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash U-Turn. And don't forget to enter your U-Turn code in to get that 20% off, Y-O-U-T-U-R-N at checkout. I don't make a penny off of this promo code, but I just love that they provided you with a 
discount. I love their products. And of course, I so appreciate that they're supporting the U-Turn podcast with their sponsorship. Now let's get back to this week's episode. Thoughts on the experience myth. I also learned early on in my career that your natural innate talents can always outmaneuver years of experience. Do you get caught in thinking that you don't have enough experience to land the job of your dreams? Look, we live in a workforce that prizes years of experience, climbing the ladder, and unnecessary corporate degrees. But the truth of the matter is that who you are, your natural gifts, always wins at work. That's why we'll also talk about your core skill set in the next chapter. Take me, for example. Why did I land such a powerful role at the Pentagon? Because of my ability to communicate. So there I was in my core nature, communicative, wise, joyful, bold, curious, and funny, which really came across as happy, chatty, and ready to take the job by the reins. You've got lots of energy, my future boss had commented in my initial days in my new position. So I'm going to offer you this leadership role. It's going to take a lot out of you, so buckle up. I'd cried then with excitement and shock, especially given how recently I'd been working as an administrative assistant. Guess what kind of job I would have gotten if I bought into the belief that I needed more experience? Perhaps another administrative assistant job, but not this time. This time, I realized my experience had nothing to do with my capability, that I wanted to be more, have more, and do more. And so I did. When I started working for the Department of Defense, I thought I'd be working with a group of like-minded individuals committed to helping the world. In the military, though, I'd learn that as a civilian without direct military experience, you're rarely seen as a valuable contributor. I quickly found out the soldiers were more interested in discovering who the new girl was. I was often asked about my life story, which felt more like an agenda for the military men to gauge whether I was single or old enough to be doing my job. To make matters worse, I was younger than virtually everyone working on the base, so people often confuse me with an administrative assistant or secretary who'd fetch their coffee. I quickly hatched an expert plan to handle their assumptions. Instead of saying, get your own damn coffee, something I wanted to say, I would play it off like they were asking me if I wanted a cup of coffee. Oh, so sweet of you to offer. No thanks, no coffee for me. I'm I'm trying to cut down. Have you ever been treated like an assistant when you're in a leadership role? For young women in the workforce, it's all too easy to internalize that messaging around who we are. The average age of an American employee is 42, but in industries like technology and media, that number is dramatically lower. In fact, a recent Harvard Business Review survey showed that the average age of private company founders with a valuation of more than a billion dollars is 31, not to mention the average age of their CEOs is 41. Interesting, right? I've heard all too often that young professionals don't want to take leaps in their career because they think they have little experience. But that's a story many of us buy into in order to stay small. Though younger workers have proven time and time again to be just as knowledgeable, committed, and talented as their older counterparts, it's easy to feel like the new kid in school every single day. We live in a workplace culture of proving yourself. In fact, 
Have you ever acted a certain way to make sure your superiors know that you're working hard or creating results? This scarcity is getting old, right? And this culture of proving ourselves keeps us from really doing our best work, let alone discovering who we are at work and our core nature. The numbers don't lie. Working in national security brought me face-to-face with these challenges and my own belief systems as a young woman working in a male-dominated world. As women, we are not only up against institutionalized ideas on age, we also have to battle millennia-old ideas about women's equality or the lack thereof. More than 40% of the 53.5 million young people in the workforce today are women. Yet only 26% of executives or senior managers and less than 5% of CEOs are women. The numbers don't lie. And don't get me started with politics, where roughly 20% of the 535 seats in Congress are held by women. Until there is a balance in gender representation, our age and beauty will have an undeniable impact on our salaries. In fact, what we look like, how we dress, And whether the men around us deem us attractive, and it's not fun either way, influence our opportunity to succeed and thrive in the workplace. According to research published in Psychological Science, the general population perceives competence based on how attractive, confident, and masculine a person appears. Despite our progress, it's an uphill battle towards the glass ceiling. Over time, the guys on the base got the message. But one in particular couldn't take a hint that I wasn't there to land a husband. His name was Farhad, and he served as a diplomatic liaison between the Pentagon and the Afghan government, which meant that he was military royalty in Afghanistan. Farhad was nice enough, but man, the guy was a hugger. Now, I've no problem with huggers. In fact, I am one. But Farhad's hugs had a way of lasting a little too long. Because of his diplomatic status and the escalating conflict as NATO was withdrawing from Afghanistan, Farhad was always in the office. As a result, he would make a point to be in my department, walk past my desk when I was working late, and give me one of his intense embraces. One afternoon, Jeanette looked over after Farhad left with his bodyguards and said in a bad accent, Great to see you, Ashley. I immediately felt the need to defend myself to make sure she and everyone else knew there was nothing going on between Farhad and me. But Jeanette beat me to the punch. Girl, you're just a honey trap, she said, rolling her eyes and returning to the hum of her southern church melodies. Mmm, you ain't nothing but trouble. I stopped typing midway through a briefing on U.S. foreign policy objectives in Afghanistan, lowered my Harry Potter-looking eyeglasses, and asked, Wait, what's a honey trap? I could hear the intelligence analyst behind me cracking up. Before Jeanette had a chance to answer my question, her phone rang. Save by the bell, she said with a smirk as she picked up the receiver. Thoughts on effective communication. A mentor once told me that in any given communication exchange, we're either adding value or taking up space. More often than not, I felt like a burden when I asked questions. Do you ever feel like that? that if you ask a question, you're in the way. Despite my fears, I'd muster the confidence to ask away. Sometimes I'd fall on my face and make a mockery of myself, but other times I'd save the room by asking something that would have otherwise slipped beneath the radar, 
something so necessary that it would add extraordinary value. We've been taught to interpret fear as a signal meaning, don't do this. But what I learned working for the Pentagon was about courage. When you feel fear in a situation that's otherwise good for your growth, do it anyway. It's a muscle you build. In the counterterrorism world, the term honey trap signifies a pretty girl who goes out into the field and seduces men as a way to collect intelligence. Based on my career trajectory, I guess Jeanette was right. I was working to eventually become that honey trap she spoke of, traveling to some of the darkest corners of the world. Not because I wanted to become some sort of seductress. In fact, that was the darkest thing I'd heard as a possibility of this job. But because I wanted to make an impact. What drives you in your career? As the laughter from my colleagues finally died down and Jeanette was still on the phone, I received an email that would instigate my transformational U-turn out of government work. The subject line of the email read, Insider Attacks on the Rise. One of the civilians I had trained months prior had been killed by a single gunshot to the head from his Afghan counterpart in the capital city of Kabul. To this day, that email still haunts me. It was the first time in my short stint working for the Department of Defense that someone I knew personally, someone I had befriended and supported through my work, was killed. The experience had a profound effect on my life outlook and the work we were trying to accomplish in the region. His death, while tragic, didn't come as a surprise. I was keenly aware of the rise in what the media referred to as insider attacks. An insider attack is when your foreign counterpart, the one you are working alongside in whatever job you were assigned to, suddenly becomes your enemy, brings a gun to work, and shoots you, likely in the face. I know it sounds harsh and overdramatic to include it here in the pages of this book, but that was the world I lived in then. That was my new reality. People I had trained were getting murdered. With this trend on the rise, the deploying civilians became more fearful and curious about the prospect of bringing a weapon into the country to protect themselves. At first, I didn't know what to say, though the request made perfect sense to me. After all, heading into a danger zone without a weapon is like skydiving without a parachute. While having a gun sounded reasonable, the truth was that none of our deploying civilians knew how to use one. This needed a solution, which meant it was time for me to change their curriculum and ensure they got the proper training. Implementing this was really a gift to myself. After all, I never again wanted to feel that pain of getting an email about a colleague being killed. Do you ever get too attached to the people that you work with? The deploying civilians would often tell me about their families, their impressive government careers, and their aspirations to do something great for their country. We would travel together from D.C. to various military bases to undergo all sorts of confidential training. Dropping them off at the airport for their final deployment was always a challenge for me because they felt like my second family. How could I not care about them or worry about their safety? My passion was a double-edged sword. It fueled my commitment to the work, but also devastated me when the job got too tough. Some people could shake off civilian deaths with ease, but I took every fatality to heart. I don't know about you, but one of the biggest challenges I faced when entering the workforce was managing my professional identity while honoring my personal feelings. These were honorable people trying to do something good for their country. 
To think once they were deployed to Afghanistan, they could show up to work and get shot in the face weighed heavy on my heart. It was a loss that I couldn't chalk up to being part of the job. I mean, if this was part of my job, it was something I would never be okay with. That's just not how I'm wired. Thoughts on boundaries at work. As Sigmund Freud says, love and work, work and love, that's all there is. Your career should be a vehicle for your self-expression, an art form that helps you be you in the world. There's something beautiful about that. Work is also a place where I rose to the challenge of creating boundaries, what I'd later start to see as the highest form of self-love. Your boundaries are where you decide what's healthy for you, not just what you want to do, but what you need to do. You decide in advance how you will show up in the world to honor them. In my case, boundaries included never engaging in shit-talking, listening without talking if I felt uncomfortable, and telling people I'd get back to them if they had a great question that I couldn't answer. Do you ever get uneasy when people are talking smack at work? Stay neutral at all costs. And most of all, know that one of the worst things you can do in the workforce is bullshit your answer to any question. There is an art to being an excellent bullshitter, but a danger to speaking beyond the capacity of your current knowledge. The ability to compartmentalize one's life in that way was never going to be one of my strong suits. To me, that was okay. I was great in other areas. I did, however, begin to keep my head down, do my job, and emotionally divest myself from getting too close to the people I was in charge of training. The thought of the risk they would face when they landed in Kabul was just too painful for me to imagine. I found myself constantly wondering, how do I balance the art of professionalism while still softening into human connection? After all, we're hardwired for human connection, especially me. I learned not to judge myself for feeling emotional towards my work and the people I worked with. In the following weeks, I pitched the idea for a civilian weapons training program and asked that it be included in our current training curriculum. Without some kind of weapons training, I argued, a civilian advisor with a gun was more of a threat to himself than anyone else. My immediate supervisor agreed. Two weeks later, the program had been implemented and our civilians were deploying with a gun in their hands. All of this was happening when it was already a really tense time in D.C. and overseas. My civilian trainees were preparing for their deployments. Insider attacks were at an all-time high in Afghanistan. President Obama was cutting down the number of troops we were sending into the country. And the search for Osama bin Laden intensified. Amidst all this, I was lost on who I truly was and more disconnected from my core nature than ever before. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the U-Turn Podcast. In the meantime, if you heard about any resource that you're interested in from one of our guests, you can find it listed in our show notes on the podcast tab of my website, ashleystahl.com. That's A-S-H-L-E-Y-S-T-A-H-L. 
www.thrivingcareerpath.com. On that page, you'll also see our free quiz to help you discover what career path you're actually meant for. And of course, we cannot thank you enough for written podcast reviews. I read every single one. I get so motivated from reading your words and it just means the world to me that you take a moment if you have an apple device and you write an actual review for me thank you so much for doing that appreciate you being here and cannot wait to connect with you next week